Hi, my name is Brandon Boat, and you are listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. Our guest today is R.T. Rybeck, the former three-term mayor of Minneapolis, who afterwards went on to lead Generation Next and is currently, if you're listening to this in June or July of 2016, he is heading the Minneapolis Foundation, one of the bigger foundations uh, located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He came on the show because he recently... Uh, wrote a book about uh, his time in the Minneapolis City Hall, talking about what that experience was like running for election and what it was like trying to govern. And it's filled with lots of different anecdotes and stories from that time period, many funny, many kind of heart-wrenching and sad. But we talked uh, with him about a lot of these different things and what his opinion was on his term and how he would reflect back. What would the R.T. Rybeck of 2001 say to the R.T. Rybeck of 2016? I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for being here. I'm super euphorically happy to be here. I, I'm delighted. Uh, so I have so many things to ask you, and we want to hear from the book. I, so I just wanted to start, though, before we kind of go through several pieces of this book. A lot of folks have uh, talked to you uh, uh, about you have a you were a journalist uh, for a long time, and you were the uh, mayor for a while. But this is doing both, uh, sort of. And so was that hard, I guess? Was writing yes. this challenging? Well, what I've said is I'm a washed-up politician and a washed-up journalist, and the journalist won this time. Uh. In- Ingrid Sundstrom out there is one of the many colleagues from the Star Tribune who I worked with. And I did cover City Hall at one point. So when I wrote it, I thought, okay... I can either do one of these sort of fake, selfie-facing political biographies that are really obnoxious. I've read those. They're not fun. I've read a lot of them. Or I could actually just try to say, this is exactly the way I saw it happening. So I did that, and, and it's, um, so I'm a far more imperfect vessel <laughs> in the book. I made a lot of, I admit a lot of mistakes and vulnerabilities, and that's not always comfortable, but I'm yeah. really happy I did it. Except now when I have to face people. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to ask. I mean, even as you were going through, were there moments where you're like, oh, God, the the political part of my brain doesn't want you to write that down? Exactly, yeah. My brother got an eye transplant, a cornea transplant once, and I asked him once. It was from a, a woman, and I said, when you go into a bar, does one eye kind of go off like this? You know what I mean? There, there are different parts of us. And um, so that was a very dramatic, different part of you. Anyway. Yeah. So, right. Well, it's the same general idea. He didn't get a transplant there, though. But um, but no, it was it was very, you know, complicated to do that. But it actually was simpler than I thought, because I just feel pretty strongly the politics side of me. Forget partisan is that I feel uh, people are feeling more and more removed from political people and they believe stuff like scandal and. House of Cards and all this stuff that's super entertaining but absurdly ridiculous. Veep is the most realistic political show I know. It's true. And um, so I wanted people to get the the Veep with a little bit of the creep. So... Okay, I'm glad you said it, but uh, right. no. I, uh, well, that's a good transition for me to ask, uh, and I think it might be uh, interesting to people. Your earliest political memory, sort of, which you talk about a little bit in here. So, so I, I, I'd be very interested to to hear you talk about the first sort of political thing you remember doing with your family. My mother giving me literature for Barry Goldwater. That is was number one, and then um, and then I became a little Richard Nixonite. And um, and then the Vietnam War came, and the 1968 Democratic Convention, and I was very politically aware, but I was kind of a little Republican, and all of a sudden I thought, this is really screwed up. 
and I even knew, learned a new word back then. It was more than screwed up. And, um, <laughs> and how old were you at this point? Not that I'm judging. Um, 13. 13. That's appropriate. And, um, yeah. and this is when I started to really want to go into politics, be mayor, all that kind of stuff. But I, uh, I was really, really deeply influenced by George McGovern. And Gary Hart. And yet you degree. won. Uh, so. <laughs> oh, I, I, I supported a long list of losing candidates. Bill Bradley, Mo Udall, Howard Dean, who I still love completely. Um, all sorts of things. But uh, the you, first real big one I won was Barack Obama. And I'm happy that one won. That, that's yeah. good. That's a good one to, yeah. to go well. Uh, so uh, you, you, started to, I, you mentioned you know, your, your dream as a child was to be mayor of Minneapolis. You actually say in here, I believe, uh, you had two dreams, to be a reporter for the Star Tribune and to be mayor of Minneapolis. Like, what? That's, I'm not, I'm not, you're You're not weird. judging the fact that I was such an anally retentive little kid that I knew exactly what I wanted to do? And that you wanted to be good. a journalist and a mayor. Like, I mean, never baseball player or... No, I was. I mean, oh, if yeah. you read the first chapter, I talk about wanting to be a Minnesota twin. Well, yes, but you gave up on that, too, and I then you settled that. by age 13. Yeah, and so it was always, it was always mayor, and then this Watergate thing came, and I added that onto it, but... You know, I think the thing that was really important about the way I was brought up is that, um, I, you know, we lived over at 49th and Sheridan. It was a perfectly middle-class neighborhood then. and But my parents had a corner store, and they put all their money to put us into Breck. So I went to school with people much richer than me. But they had a drugstore at Chicago and Franklin when that started to become a pretty violent neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so I, I would spend the day with people richer than me and then go to the drugstore at night, especially after my dad died, and be with people dr with dramatically less. And I think at an early age, I got a sense of my privilege and my point in the continuum on all of that. And I think that started to get me thinking about how wrong it is that people are, that there is this continuum of privilege and that there are two different cities. And that's when I really started to get into this mayor deal. I mean, that's sort of a very deep thought again for... I, well, 14, 15-year-old to have to recognize uh, there's a lot of people I, I 30 that don't get to the point of recognizing their privilege or the... Well, and it's it's strangely a privilege to be put in situations where you understand your privilege, because I wouldn't have come to this realization, except it. I mean, it was so stark, you know, to... And I went to school with really, really nice people, but they had a lot more money than me. And then when you deliver prescriptions around Chicago and Franklin at eight o'clock at night, you would see really intense stuff and you couldn't avoid it. I mean, I would have, I wasn't like I was brilliant, I, it, but it, well, it was also, I wasn't clueless. Okay, you know, I would have to have been cool. clueless to not pick that up. And I think um, one of the things that I love about cities is that they're where ideally all sorts of people come together so you can get that. And as much as we dump on where we are in cities, think about this, you go to Europe, and why are they having all of these problems, especially with immigrants? Not that we don't have some, but in this community, you can lead a upper class, middle class, and uh, a life in poverty, and geographically, to a certain degree, within the city at least, see cross those lines. When I went to Stockholm, I was asked to go there because why was Somali integration working better here than there? Well, I figured that out pretty simple. European cities, Stockholm, Paris, all the others, all the immigration, all the poverty is way in the exurbs. Here, there's more of a mixing. As segregated as we are, and we are, it's far less than other places, and there's more. The great hope of cities, to me, is that there's one place 
where there's at least some modicum of common ground. Well, and you talk a lot about affordable housing being a really big driver of uh, you wanting to run for mayor. Uh, I wanted to just ask, even before we get into those specific things, I mean, you ran for mayor uh, without any previous sort of uh, having held elected office. You were involved in some campaigns. Yes, that's and things the like only that. thing I have in common with Donald Trump. The only thing. <laughs> yeah. And um, that should be an applause line. That's a cheap applause line. <laughs> At least he knows it. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but I, well, maybe this. Then I'm going to try and suggest you have something else. I mean, that's some gumption of you to take on a sitting mayor, right? Like with yes. no political background uh, of your own, no uh, held office to think I could be mayor. Uh, well, and- yeah. It, I mean, it's. I think there is a certain incredible arrogance to running. But the dirty little secret is that. I sort of pretty much thought I was going to lose and then come back four years later and win. And so I was a little surprised that I won. You know, I thought it was possible, but not likely. And, you know, when I said I was going to run, um, Megan and I got our kids together. And um, we're sitting at dinner and, you know, uh, well, I'm thinking of running for mayor. Oh, you'll win, Dad. And I'm trying to, like, walk through how unlikely. Oh, no, you'll win, Dad, very matter of fact. And so I, I won, and so it, our kids have been unrealistic since that day. <laughs> yeah. And your kids at this point, they were, what, 9 and 11? Uh, yeah, something yeah. Like, And so your kids grew up uh, in campaigns and in uh, a mayoral office. Yeah. How did that screw them up? Well, it, they're, they're really pathologically nuts now. No, they're actually they're pretty good because we did a couple things. My wife is a phenomenal person. And one of the things she was really adamant about is structure. So, and family dinner was a really big thing I was raised with, and she was. So we had dinner, even at the nutsiest time, we had dinner together, and that was a really big deal. But there's one anecdote I put in the book where the kids were totally you know, not knowledgeable about politics when I started, but by the end of the first race, there was a, um, there was a poll that came out in the paper the Sunday before the election. And, and I come down and... Gracie, our daughter, who's nine, is saying, Charlie, there's a poll in the paper that Dad is up by 19 points or something like that. And he said, he was 11. Yeah, but what's the margin of error, he says. And I thought, okay, this, these kids are learning. And they're and very And your daughter, at this same age, was writing like a blog yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. called like yes. Gracie's, Gracie's like campaign updates, yeah. something like that. Yeah, and she was untamed at that point as well as now. And so she would say things like, I went to register, you know, and we get the whole thing, you know, to sign up. So you get the, all these people regist- getting ready to register to, to be on the ballot, and you got all the media stuff. But I kind of forgot one detail. I didn't bring my license. You know, and you actually, so somebody asked for ID, and I didn't have any ID on me. So that was one of her little tips. For and then Republicans it, thought, we got to pass a voter ID to stop people like this I was like the one. It all started with that, and it's mayor, completely out of control. We could have shut that whole thing exactly. down. Yeah, yep. they were trying to stop me, not, not every person of color in the entire country who they're trying to stop from voting. That's good. Yeah. Although I did give an anecdote about being in Cleveland right before the uh, 2012 election and seeing what voter disenfranchise meant. And because I wound up doing a lot of national political stuff, I got to actually see what it means to cut people off from voting, and it's enormous. Um, 
there was kind of a funny story from that thing. I was, um, do you know John Legend? You know, okay, John Legend, yeah. okay. So it's the Sunday before the election, and Ohio had been cutting off early voting, especially for African Americans doing what's called souls to the polls. So we were riding this bus around Ohio with John Legend, and we get to the first place, and he, he starts singing, Wake Up Everybody, you know that great song by Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, and everybody's singing along, Wake Up Everybody, and we go to another stop, and everybody's singing along. So we get down to downtown Cleveland, and there are hundreds of people out there voting. We stand up on the steps of these this church, and I'm behind John Legend, and he starts singing, and I start singing, wake up, everybody. And after about the third verse, I realized this time, no one else was singing along. So I'm sure they thought, who is the white guy with no rhythm who's John Legend's new backup singer? So... Yeah. I don't know how I got I, on to that. You, but did it's, you, it's, how did the, the election go? Uh, yeah, so, they, Obama won. Oh, yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> Campaign yeah. update. Uh, so uh, uh, we've got so much to cover. I do want to, so you won, You did win that first race by a pretty good m- margin. And Yes, this was a large digression, yeah, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. I won the race. Yeah, how, sorry. <laughs> how did you, why do you think you won that race in retrospect? I mean, again, taking on a sitting mayor, uh, being relatively unknown. I think you have an anecdote in here. You had 20% name ID when you started that race. In Um, July. In July, yeah. yeah. Well, I think one of the things that did happen that made me feel really good about politics is that uh, I decided I'd take no money from people doing business with the city, which was complicated and all this stuff, so we had very little money, but I door knocked the hell out of the city, just like day after day after day, hundreds and hundreds of different homes. I did not hundreds in a day, but I mean, I did a lot. And um, it's really possible to have one-on-one contact with lots and lots of people you can't do that in the United States of America, but you can do it in Minneapolis, and I think that's really good. And your strategy towards door knocking changed over the course of that campaign. Yes, yes. I, I described in the book that I started off, you know, I'm kind of hyper, let's face it. So I would, the door would open, knock, knock, you know, and, and hi, I'm R.T. Ryback. And I've got, you know, like a Fuller Brush salesperson or whatever the modern equivalent is. And, um, you know, blah, 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 and people would thanks and close the door. And then I was very ineffective. And then I realized that what I should do, and this is Eric, it's in life, Eric Roper, Star Tribune reporter. Okay, what you do is you have to sometimes walk up to the front door of somebody's house and start asking them questions. And once I realized my job wasn't to give them, you know, the Gettysburg Address while they're in their underwear with a beer in their hand, but to actually begin to understand who they are. Why do you have a beer in your underwear? No, but, no, but start really asking questions. And I began asking questions and asking questions. And by the time of the debates, I actually had a pretty good understanding after hundreds and hundreds of door knocks about where people were at. And that, I think, was really helpful. So, again, I was more of a journalist then than a politician, and I think that helped. And so, again, I'm, I'm breezing through, and I should uh, say that we're going to open it up to everybody to ask questions in the second half of the show. So I know I'm going through a lot of stuff fast here. Uh, your actual first inauguration uh, was both very poignant and then very chaotic, uh, one after the other, it seemed yes, like. Yes, it was wonderfully moving and then a freak show. So... Um, it's kind of a long story, but uh, it was, you know, very moving for me. I'd never done this before. It was all great. So after I got sworn in, the uh, city council chamber was being remodeled. So they had to do the original, what's called the organizing meeting for the council, which is when they elect their leadership. And they were a new group and kind of a little unsettled. So they walked in and they 
the this whole big political drama played out in front of everybody that went on for two and a half hours. There are kids, maybe two and a half hours, kids sitting on the steps after singing their little song, watching this bare-knuckled political brawl. To, to figure out who the council president would and be. Vice president. And vice president. It was just like a mess. And so it was pretty much by the end of the first couple of weeks, people knew I was absolutely, totally not ready for prime time. In fact, if you yeah. filibuster for two seconds, I will. I'll read um, you a very quick thing. So while he's finding that, I'll say very quickly, uh, you might have uh, noticed when you came in, there's a barrel for Finnegan's. If you bring a canned good to one of our shows, oh, here we go. you get $2 off of a Finnegan's, and if we fill up the barrel, everybody in the audience gets a free beer. Uh, so come back to the show, bring a canned good, uh, and thank you to Finnegan's. All right, All right. Uh, what so, was happening back so the, to our show? The first year was just like this train wreck, and I go through all these different things, tried firing the police chief, did all these things, and I was messing up all over the place. Uh, it was about this time that I walked into the TV studio on the first floor of City Hall for the Mayor's Roundtable, the public access cable show Mayor's Sales Belton and Fraser had done when they were in office. I put the mic on my lapel, hopped up on the stool in front of the camera, and the show began. The live show began. Welcome to the Mayor's Roundtable, I said cheerily, uh, trying to set a casual tone, and I began to ad lib. As you can see, there's no roundtable in the studio. Looking around at the only furniture I could find, I blurted out without thinking, maybe we should call it the Mayor's Stool. <laughs> and that was many things that I said in the first year that I wish I had never done. So That's good. That um, I... <laughs> That's good. I, it makes me feel better. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, yeah. In what uh, way? Uh, well, just you know, <laughs> no, go I, on. I say lots. I ad lib lots of things. Uh, so, uh, so uh, I, I did want to ask you about uh, sort of navigating that uh, relationship with the city council and how your approach to that changed over the course of the years. Because uh, most people know Minneapolis has a more or less weak mayor system in some ways. It's a little mixed more so than some yeah. places. But it's actually not a weak mayor system. It's a weak mayor, weak council, weak coordinator, fractured system where nobody's got a lot of authority. But that's it was created by somebody asked me once, like, does Minneapolis have a long term drug problem? And I said, yeah, because somebody was smoking something when they wrote the charter. I mean, it's really, really odd. But the beautiful thing about it is that the mayor does have a lot more power than that. You can control the budget. You can make appointments. You can do a lot of other things. But you really have to work with people. So um, I walked into this massive budget mess. It was after 9-11. And so the only thing I could do is I thought I'm never going to get anything done unless I get the council on my side. So instead of me doing budget hearings, I brought the council leadership and then the council members into my budget things, and I worked things out. So when I presented the budget, I'd already had about 80% of it agreed to with the council. And that became something that was super helpful to get things done. With that council, I, if, uh, how would you compare that council when you first started to the council that we have now, which is also sort of very new in some ways? They yeah. just came in in 2013. I think there were a lot of similarities. The first council I had on this council, I think there's some really good individuals on this council. Um, I think it's, it's, it seems to be uh, they're still trying to figure out how to work with each other a little bit. And... Um, it seems to be a little more drama than usual, but um, but there are some really good people on it. I'd hang in there with some really good people on it. So uh, over the course of the years, uh, you talk, I, one of the things I find really interesting about this uh, book as a political memoir is uh, usually folks wait until all of the people that they're talking about are dead. Yeah. Uh, but you decided case, to just write about yeah. all of them. And I'm wondering, did any of them call? Did any of them call you and say, "RT, I read your book, and I don't particularly. Yeah. I have something to read back to you." Um, 
Um, well, instead of waiting for everyone to be dead, I wrote something that would get me killed. So it's oh. sort of the same thing. But um, yeah, there was actually one thing in here I thought I could read. I had a little bit of a um, discussion with Councilmember Lisa Goodman, who I had a very com complicated relationship with. Lisa has a very good sense of humor. Ha ha, I hear. Councilor, I'm just going to, is she in the audience? Uh, yeah. No, good. All right. No, uh, no, no, go no, on. Go it, it could be. Yeah. But, um, but uh, she and I did some really big things together. She and I, honestly, there were a whole bunch of money that used to go to developments. She and I put a screeching halt on, halt on a lot of that. She was very supportive of a lot of financial stuff. But she um, is, um, uh, you know, a I'm going to let you find the word because I don't want to get into it. Uh, so she and I had all this drama going. So I think I can read this quickly. Um, <laughs> I better not read it. No, I'm trying to see if I can do this. Now you have quickly. to. Uh, okay, so um, I'm sorry. I just, I. Okay, I, okay, so Lisa Goodman and I had this massive blowout. I was trying to protect the global market. She didn't think we should do that, blah, 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 blah. So we had this huge blowout, but we did finally figure out one way to actually have the um, drama between us play itself out. So we were. Uh, I'll sort of um, paraphrase this. She and I were negotiating the Target Center deal with the uh, people from the Timberwolves. And it was going very well. It was all very respectful. And then the NBA sent in this jerk from New York to be just a jerk in the negotiations. So uh, we were getting, it was just going nowhere. So I adjourned everyone and said, um, so Lisa and I and the council president and the city attorney went into my office and I said, Lisa, when we go back in there, when I say the word constituent, I want you to go off on that New York attorney. You had like a code word, like code a, a, a yeah, constituent. owl hoot that yeah, you, except yeah. it was constituent. Yeah, it was our political safe word. No, it was, it was constituents, <laughs> constituents. And so we walk back in and I, I say, you know, this attorney's yelling at us. And I said, I don't think that'll go very well with our constituents. And, um, I look over at Lisa, and she didn't do anything, you know. So blah, blah, blah. And then I say some more, and I said, blah, blah, blah. Constituents and Lisa, for once in her life, is keeping her mouth shut. I couldn't figure this out. And so, so the third time, and I say constituents, and Lisa sits up, and she lambasts the guy, like m twice as much as she's ever done to me. And the guy was just like, whoa. And he backed down, and we got everything we wanted. So had Lisa and I figured this out earlier, we could have been an incredible... Duo. Jeez, yeah. yeah. But we still got a lot done together. We would have so. had the Olympics here by now. Like. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. She and I would have been in the tandem skating or whatever. Yeah, that would have been very funny. So, uh, so uh, I, I just, I, I wanted to ask... Ice of, dancing, maybe. Yeah. Uh, oh, I wanted to ask one last thing, and again, uh, we're going to bring you back in the second half of this. So... Um, when you were looking back sort of on uh, putting these you, I think you write very well about uh, sort of feeling like towards the end you had a limited amount of time. You you decided not right. to run. I mean, uh, were there things toward the end where you're like, God, I wish I just had one more year or two more totally, years to yeah. do? When I um, announced I wasn't going to run, it was a year before the end of the term, and I said, um, I believe in a good value, so I'm going to give you four years of work in one year. And it was a throwaway line, but it was actually true. I worked super, super hard. And I got a lot done, but I absolutely, totally was upset that the Southwest Light Rail Line didn't come through Uptown. And so one of the things I really wanted to do was to deliver a light rail line that would start at where the Kmart is and open up Nicollet and then go down Nicollet 
in Nicollet Mall, and then across East Hennepin and into Northeast. Um, and I had gotten something through the legislature that gave us a financial tool to get that done. But these two things came up against each other. So the city got in a fight with the people building the Southwest light rail line, and that sort of ripped apart the coalition to get the streetcar done. And I'm bummed about that. Um, there was one thing that I really wanted to get done. 29th Street out here looks like it's from a war zone, right? And so there was, we were supposed to put some money in on the capital budget. I said, I'm going to put another nickel into that. What we really need is a pedestrian way. And so um, that I was really bummed I wasn't going to get to. But Meg Toddhill, the outgoing council member, helped. And then Lisa Bender, the incoming council member, who's a planner, picked that up. And so that's moving. So that's exciting, you know, when you have something picked up. And then the other thing I didn't get done is um, I left with the city had a huge achievement gap for kids of color in school. Now, I wasn't in charge of the schools, but it really upset me. So that's why I was happy I got to go to Generation Next and work on that issue full time. And I'm going to continue to be on the board there and work really hard on that one. Well, I think that that is a wonderful place because I wouldn't be surprised if there are some questions about uh, what you're up to these days in the second half of our show. But for right now, can you all do a big round of applause uh, for Mr. Arkin? All right. Well, uh, the mayor is leaving. So uh, good show, everyone. We'll call it a night. No, I, he got his beer. All right. Mazel tov. Uh, okay. So if you, have a, oh, if you have a question, uh, hang on. Can you Did give you me your name when you talk to What? Give me your name. My yeah. name's Meg. Hey, Meg. Did you know what the new stadium was going to look like? <laughs> it's, it's bigger than I thought. That's all? Uh, yeah. It's, yes. Um, okay. Well, we'll, we'll, okay, we'll come back expand. to it. Uh, so, uh, good. Okay, all it's right. much yes. bigger than I thought. Uh, all right. Uh, right there. Right there. My name's Gwen. I know you. I know you know me. Um, are you sorry you didn't run for another term? You know, I actually, uh, and I talked about this a bit in the book, I was um, really wrestling with the whole idea of running for another term because uh, my thought was I should run again and focus on the achievement gap. So I would focus on really kind of rallying the community around that and equity, and that was sort of my my goal. Um, it, um, I think the point, and I talked about this in the book, it was was the the shooting at accent printing was incredibly difficult frankly after being around that much death and have, after having been um, you know I had just taken a tour of the place and really liked the man who owned it Ruben Rahabin and um, I was really devastated by that I obviously their families went through a lot more but I, I, after I really felt after that, you know, I need to step back a little from death for a while. It wasn't the only reason, but it, it was a big factor. Um, but uh, if I would have run again and focused on the achievement gap, something would have happened. I never would have had the ability I've had in these past couple of years to really dive into what I'm doing on race and equity and education, early childhood and literacy and math. I never would have had that gift of that ability to focus that much. So what I do now is 
try to bring foundations and community groups and citizens and schools together. And I never could have done that as mayor. You're, you're spread so thin. And I love that. But so the short answer is I'm really happy the way it worked out. One of the things I wanted to just ask as a follow-up to that, because you do write very, uh, I think, powerfully about uh, being mayor at really difficult times. And one of the interesting things you talk about is you went to a Mayor 101 kind of school uh, at Harvard, and one of the pieces of advice they gave you is mayors should deliver good news, and you rejected that. And I was yeah. wondering if you could say a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, imagine being sort of freaked out that you won the election, it's right after 9-11, and there are all these issues, and suddenly out of the blue, you get this invitation to go to essentially a mayor's school. They, all the mayors of big cities get invited for a few days to meet with a bunch of other mayors and just learn about that. So I got some great advice. Um, I was there with a bunch of people, including Kwame Kilpatrick, the mayor of Detroit. After a day, he said, I can't learn anything at Harvard. He was indicted a couple years later, but that's another story. <laughs> but anyway, so so one of these, um, one of the people did say give that advice. And the second I heard it, I thought, that's exactly the opposite of what I want to do. So I was very much about show up, show up, show up. And especially when I was early on feeling there were certain parts of the job where I was frankly over my head. I just thought, okay, I can mess up a lot of things, but if I just keep showing up and showing up and showing up, and that was something I was really proud of doing. I did, throughout the book, talk a little bit about the consequence of being that immersed in death that often. And um, I, that's a very difficult thing for me to be talking about, but I think it was a really important thing to put in the book because I think when you look at ministers or teachers or other people who are around such intense levels of trauma, um, that it has a consequence. And um, I think it's important to talk about. It's not necessarily yippee fun to talk about, yeah. but it's important. All right. There were a bunch of hands, so I'll come right yeah. here and then up there. Yeah. So that was a laugh riot. <laughs> Let's keep it up. Yeah. Hi, my name is Janice. I One like of the great uh, media leaders in town. Oh, well, so that's KFBI, like, oh, KBM, you, she's great. Yeah, you read my Coolest mind. Coolest glasses in town. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I really wanted to ask you what in your early formative years allowed you to be so supportive of the variety of community media that transcends St. Paul and Minneapolis. One, it's, it's really amazing how much we have here and you've been supportive. What led you to that? Well, it's, yeah, we have an incredible, well, you know, I actually had a history in journalism. I was a reporter. I started off at the Sun newspapers. I was editor of the St. Louis Park Sun. But my career included going to the Reader. The Reader was on its last legs. David Carr was in there. He talked me into being publisher in its last. Then we started Q, a gay and lesbian monthly there. Then I was in um, something called Internet Broadcast, which had started doing TV-based websites. And during that time, I began working with other media to bring them into the internet. And so I was always a big consumer of community-based journalism. And I said, and sorry for those of you with the Star Tribune, I said if one paper had to close in this town, the Star Tribune or the Southwest Journal, I would rather have it be the Star Tribune. I love the Star Tribune. But the Southwest Journal, and then what became their citywide thing, is to me the kind of journalism I deeply, deeply believe in, uh, very community-based. And so, um, I don't know, I just, um, I just can't, don't think you can have a democracy without being challenged a lot. And I got challenged a lot, a lot, a lot by a lot of community voices, but that's kind of the deal. Beautiful. Uh, there was a hand up here, and then I'll. Hi. Hi. What did you learn from your um, 
time spent working on Tony Bozo's campaign <laughs> that you could apply to your campaign as premier? Yeah, so Tony Bozo was um, the police chief when I was covering police. And so, you know, it was every couple of years they change police chiefs and get these guys who were sort of police-like. And out of the blue comes this guy from New York who, and I couldn't do the first interview because I kept laughing because his, his vocabulary was absurdly large and all that, but he did some really cool things, including really diffuse the fissure between the GLBT community and police and, I mean, did really good things. So a few years later, Tony got this idea that he wanted to run for the Senate, and a group of us talked him out of that and said, run for governor. So the idea was a very, very, very progressive version of Venturaism. And we said, Tony, you've already offended half of the state, and you haven't even run yet. So don't try to be a nice guy. Just say what's on your mind. Now, this was so different than what Trump is doing. But the idea was, for a year, I followed Tony around and said, what Tony meant to say was blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and he was hilarious. He would, he would you know, there he was just a huge guy. He had this big head and stuff. And he was saying, uh, well, this is relevant. And uh, I said, Tony, you know, you're like, you didn't, when these kids are there, you get like so close, they, you scare them. He said, kids love me. I remind them of Easter Island, he said. <laughs> so that was just like a great line. And Tony was really, really funny. In fact, there was Erica. Um, Tony was a slob. Uh, I say graciously. And Erica, his wife, was very, very elegant and well-dressed. You guys know Tony and Erica? Okay. So for months as we were preparing him to run for governor, I kept saying, Tony, on this one day when you announce you've got to look like a governor, you know, you've got to, like, you know, look a little more authoritative here. So um, on the day I was announcing, it's 5 a.m., and I go to his house, pick him up, and Tony comes down, and Tony looks great. He looks like a governor. And Erica, of course, looks phenomenal. So we go walking out the door and we put on our coats and then Erica put on her hat. Now Erica's an artist and the hat was done by an artist but I think generously it looked like a popover landed on her head. It was this <laughs> huge thing. So the entire plane ride up to Duluth, I'm like twitching, how am I going to tell Erica to take the hat off? And so um, finally we get up to Duluth and I say, let's put our coats and hat over here. And Erica turns on a dime and she says to me, the hat stays. And Tony comes up to me and says, you're a brave man, RT. <laughs> and anyway, so the whole thing. So Erica did the press conference in the hat. And the next day, Tom Bernard, remember Tom Bernard, goes on the radio and says, oh, this Bose is going nowhere. And who's Erica thinks she is? Eleanor Roosevelt? Did you see the hat? You know. But I love Tony and Erica Bose. They are really, really great. And uh, Tony lost that in part because he took a very uh, gutsy stand on guns. He'd been around guns his whole life. And as I would certainly see many, many times as mayor, we are um, absurd in the way we arm ourselves. And so he lost. I'm proud of him. Okay. Uh, we, we have time for a few more questions Sorry right here. Sorry to go on yeah. about that. But. What was the most ridiculous argument or problem you had to work around with mayor? Oh, my God. I have so many ridiculous problems. Um, <laughs> I know I'm going to come up with one. Can I hold that? I'm going to think about that for a second. Give me another question, and I'll come up with a okay, ridiculous problem. Okay, I'm going to problem. come over here real quick. That's such a good question. I Hi, my name is Lori. I'm a huge fan of your work, and Thank especially you, at Generation Next. Thank I you. used to work on the achievement gap in Madison, Wisconsin, so I know it's a complicated issue. Uh, could you just tell us in your time there, like the top one or two things that we can do to really address it and reduce it? For individuals to do, I want you to call Generation Next and volunteer for Gen Next Reads. How many of you have ever read to a kid in a school? 
Raise your hands. Keep your hand up if you had any training whatsoever before you went into that school. Keep your hand up if you had training that you felt represented the very best that every single nonprofit in this community knows about reading. Okay? So thank you for reading. Shame on us for sending all these people in without training. So what we do is we connect with organizations that really work well with it. But I also ask you, we're involved in early childhood literacy, math, high school graduation, and others. But the most important thing to remember is the frame of the achievement gap is this lucky part of the population is here, and we're going to bring these people up to where these people are. Well, that's not true, because the fact of the matter is these lucky people have a massive cultural fluency gap. We all have to go over here. We need everybody. And so we've done a lot of work in what assets different communities bring to the table in trying to do that. So there's not one thing to close the achievement gap any more than there's one ingredient to bake a cake. But one thing is we have to look at this very differently and realize that the kid of the majority culture in a majority only or majority majority school is going to have a huge gap in a new world where you got to understand people different than them. So we, we all need each other. That's a short answer. I, it, uh, I, I am curious as a follow-up to you've taken this new position at uh, the Minneapolis Foundation, and I know you're going to stay on the board of Generation Next, but do you feel as though you're going to have more opportunity then with the Minneapolis Foundation to address this thing that you've really articulated yeah. as being super important? The Minneapolis Foundation is a really, really exciting opportunity that where they're focused uh, on many issues, but especially on equity. So I can uh, do that, and I said that education is what I really want to focus on but I'm going to stay on the executive committee of Generation Next and be deeply involved in that. So I'm not walking away from that issue at all. The cool thing about the Minneapolis Foundation is if you want to be generous with your dollars, you can just write a check or you can work with Schwab or something and they can invest this stuff and they'll make a little fee off that. So someone on Wall Street makes a fee off your money and that's how it works. But wouldn't it be cool if instead of having that fee go to Wall Street or some broker in the private, wouldn't it be cool if we took the proceeds from that and put it in a pot. That's been happening for 100 years in this community. And so what that means is a lot of that money is built up. And so that totals about $60 million a year the Minneapolis Foundation and its donors put out in the community. So my job is to go around and do good things for the community and convince people that if they want to do something good, do it through the Minneapolis Foundation. And that not only goes to the people they're helping, but it also helps be to fund within it. It's really exciting to think about trying to say to everybody in a room like this, you know, we think, oh, gee, there are 100 rich people and they're going to put a bunch of money in a pot. That's not the way it's going to work anymore. We've got to get all of us to be more generous. And so the foundation will give me a really good opportunity to do that. Okay. I, I have uh, time for one more audience question and then uh, I was going to ask uh, right here. Yet. Yeah, I, Hi, I'm Denise. Hi, Denise. Hi. I wanted to ask you, what was the best advice you gave Mayor Hodges when you handed over the torch? Don't be R.T. Ryback. Uh, no, I'm totally serious. That there is not a job description for a political job on purpose. Because I really think what we need to do is intentionally we should have different personalities with different skill sets and all of that. And somebody would say something, well, she's not doing this the way you would. It's good. you know. It's really important that as we judge our political leaders, that we judge them for what they're bringing to the table, like waves in an ocean coming in. And, um, and so I think that's really important to be yourself. So I have two. I have two last questions I wanted to ask. A, a, a really. Uh, oh yeah. Wait. Okay, we never, never got, got to her. Yeah, I know. Okay. I, I'm, 
Well, I'll ask the I'll ask the hard question, and then you'll be desperate to ask this yeah, uh, answer yeah, yeah. this. So, yeah. which is so somebody did ask about uh, the stadium, and I don't want to like re-debate the the stadium, but I but I did find it interesting in her. You talk a lot about running for mayor and being really inspired to run in part by uh, the push against uh, giving big subsidies to uh, and writing checks. I think, as you say, yep. to developers and whatnot. So, I wanted to. Ask, what would RT Ryback of 2001, you know, say to yeah. Ryback of 2012 uh, around the Viking Stadium? Yeah. Well, first, the RT Ryback who ran said that we were putting a lot of money into public projects. So I put a screeching halt on that. So we went from 13% of the property tax being off the tax rolls to 6%. City center, blocky, these projects I never agreed with never should have gotten private money. Uh, so... Overall, the only place that we really put private dollars into a private project was the Sears building, which became the global market. The stadium was one of those things where you take an imperfect situation, and I chose to either, you can either ignore it or you can engage. The stadium was going to get built. I felt it was going to be built by taking the sales tax in the city of Minneapolis and moving a business to, to Arden Hills. I didn't like it. I hate sports economics, but here's what I did. We crafted a deal that said that if we got involved with that, not our property taxes, but took the sales tax from the city and put it into the stadium, it would give us enough dollars to take Target Center off your property tax rolls and fix it up, do the convention center, attract Wells Fargo, which puts a million dollars a year each into the county and the schools and about 400000 into the city, build a two-block park, and set up a real estate boom in the east side of downtown. Or do nothing, and have the city's money used to move a business to the suburbs and have a white elephant in a part of town with parking lots. So I guess Totally imperfect situation. I don't like it, but I'm sure like the economic deal, and I like the outcome. Do you think that you would have made the same decision and then when you were first elected, potentially, that you did in the end? No, I wouldn't have done it, because there's a chapter in here called The Thin Line Between Love and Respect. I wouldn't have done it because it was unpopular, and I wouldn't have done something unpopular at first. I did it because there were a lot of people who said it's not a good idea because it's getting involved in a football stadium. But having spent 12 years getting the city on good financial standpoint, I was paid to look at that judgment, and I made the judgment that it's an unpopular thing to do, that long-term is the right thing. Too big, not my, my perfect project, hate sports, economics. I wish every situation given you was perfect, but at the end of the day, if you drive through that part of town and you look at the economics of it, on the millions coming into the city because of that, that allow us to put more cops on the street and all that. I'm damn happy I did it, but I never would have done it when I was afraid of doing something that was unpopular, even if I thought it was right. Uh, okay, so uh, this is still sitting out there. So no. Okay, so uh, I had so many crazy things. I'm trying to even remember what they were. Um, so I'll ask you my my other follow-up, which maybe this will give you a chance to think yeah. this through. It's just, uh, uh, this book is uh, is out, and it's for sale back here, so uh, you all should grab it. For, thank you, Majors and Quinn, for being here to Love Majors it. and Quinn. Buy um, from bookstores. Uh, what, do you, uh, what do you want folks to take away from this book? What, when yeah. they're done reading this, what do, you, what do you want them to think about? I want them to understand their city better. I want them to understand how things really work better. And uh, I want especially the idealistic young people I know to recognize that there is such a thing as public service. And um, you can do really wonderful things. You don't have to run for office to do it. 
But I think we've become so wry and ironic and cynical that we tend to forget the fact that there are ways that we can have people do the common good. And I don't just mean sure like, oh, are. gee, are. No, there absolutely <laughs> are. There absolutely are. And, uh, and it's not just because there's a person. This is not a s story of like this guy who does a bunch of stuff. There's, the whole story is about how all these people, different coalitions and different people come together on it. And that's the way it works. And when we start giving up to our cynicism and believe that there's no way to do good things, I'll guarantee you nothing good will happen. And if we instead challenge authority and all the things that are important, I think, you know, we're one of the greatest cities on the planet, but we shouldn't be satisfied. So um, let's do more. Uh, yes, that should be, a, yeah, applause line. Um, Oh, I did think of one other thing I wanted to. So you were on our show once before, Love right that, after yeah. uh, uh, the last election. Uh, and there, when you were on the show then, you said, oh, I'm very interested in running for governor again someday. Yeah. And a lot of people have asked you this, and you said, oh, if I were running for governor, why would I write this book? But but are you going to? You can just tell us. Nobody listens to this no, show. No, I'm going uh, to go do the Minneapolis Foundation instead. I, I really had to think about it, and uh, it would be cool to run for governor. But when I really thought about the opportunity to at the Minneapolis Foundation, I think I can get a bunch of stuff done right now. So no, I'm not going to run for governor. Not in 20, but not in 2018, but in 2022. I I don't know. All yeah, right, he yeah, announced yeah. it here. No, folks. no, no, uh, don't do that. No, no, no. Are are you are you ever going to appear on Broadway? Uh, am I invited? Do you have that authority? Are you, are you inviting me to are be you, governor? No. I mean, that's uh, the thing. Is that like. No, I'm doing what I'm doing, but you could very easily be on Broadway, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, are you denying? Are you denying that you ever want to go on Broadway? I, listen, I want to keep my options open. Um, there's a lot of things that could happen between now and then. I don't want to close any doors. Uh, did you think of the worst uh, or one of a bad example of like what was your question exactly? Most ridiculous what? Anything. Oh, it's God, a big. So that's a big platter. Um, oh gosh. Um, there were so many ridiculous things. There are a bunch of personnel things that I can't say. It really bugged me that I couldn't. You know, it's like office. There's like some really juicy stuff, but of course you can't. So that was that was. There was Have a, another uh, beer. There there was one issue that we had to deal with, and Tina Smith, you see on the wall, was my chief of staff. Um, she and I had to read something about some city employee and a complaint and all that, and we looked at each other and I said, geez, I think we have to have a cigarette. I mean, it was really tawdry. <laughs> and, um, you know, so there are, um, there are things you have to deal with, but that's, you know, how you deal with personnel stuff. But we're not going to get into that because I can't get into that. All right, right well, uh, come back for our 10 o'clock show uh, <laughs> on <laughs> RT After Dark. Uh, until then, uh, ladies and gentlemen, a big round of applause. RT Ryback. Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you're interested in coming to an upcoming show, you can find all those details at www.t2p2.net.